Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone, before we get started, the union. Join the union.us. We need every one of you out there. Join the union.us. Join the pro-democracy army that is going to take it to the anti-democratic candidates this fall, that's going to support the pro-democracy candidates and groups that are going to help us defend this great, messy, noisy, loud American experiment. We can do it, but we can't do it without you. Join the union.us, sign up today and get involved. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by John Seifer, foreign policy and intelligence expert who served 28 years in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, including a tour at the CIA's Moscow station. His articles have been published in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Politico, Foreign Affairs, and other outlets. He also regularly appears on MSNBC, CNN, NPR, and PBS NewsHour. He's the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, a global production company run by former senior intelligence officers from the U.S. and U.K. and experienced Hollywood producers. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you have a lot of unique experience as someone having not only served in the National Clandestine Service as, a, as an officer for the CIA, but also in the crucible that is Moscow. So let me ask you, there are the so-called Moscow rules that I think foreign intelligence officers have to really contend with. So tell me a little bit about your experience there, because I want to use that as the beginning of our conversation about obviously what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. But what was your sense of the place when you were there, which is a pretty general question, but also give us a little sense of what it's like to live and work in such a denied area, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, in fact, that is the term we used to call it. And so inside the clandestine service, which is the espionage arm of the CIA, not the analytic side or the science and technology side, but the spy running side of the agency. There's sort of a variety of different sort of tribes and cultures, even inside the clandestine service. So there's the people, the Near East people who spend most of their career sort of in the Middle East and work in those areas. There's Africa people, there's South America people, Asia people and Chinese experts. The people who work in Russia, it's sort of a different sort of kettle of fish. So in a lot of places, you know, CIA case officers are living overseas and our job is to meet foreign people, try to develop relationships with people who might have access to information we can't get any other way, recruit them, hopefully, and then run them secretly as spies for the United States. Moscow, on the other hand, is a very, very different situation in this fact that the Russians are obsessed with spying, they're obsessed with conspiracies, and they're obsessed with security and these issues. It's essentially a state almost run by the security services. And frankly, Vladimir Putin is a career KGB officer, and he's continued what the Soviets did of keeping sort of what used to be called the KGB, and are now their internal and external security services, as sort of the forefront of everything they do, their foreign policy and their domestic policy. So in a place like Moscow, a foreign diplomat, or certainly a foreign intelligence officer, if they know you're an intelligence officer, is monitored constantly. Your house will be wired with audio and video. 
essentially everything you do will be monitored. You'll probably be followed everywhere you go. It's not hyperbole. I think when I was there for a couple of years, I don't think there was ever a time that I didn't have full-time surveillance, people following me everywhere, tracking everything you did, interviewing everybody you talked to, you know, trying to set you up. It's a place where we sort of prepare our officers there with sort of psychological training that you're going to be monitored all the time. You have to always be thinking about what you're saying, what you're doing, who you're meeting, trying to think about the ramifications. If you talk to someone, what that might mean, what they might be reporting, what they might be reporting back to you. And so it's an odd place for us to work. We still try to find a way to carry out espionage operations there, but it's a different kettle of fish. Maybe to meet someone on the street for a few minutes might take you know a month or two of preparation. When you have to live in that kind of world, I mean, think about it. You're living in the Truman Show, to <laughs> make it good. simple for someone like me. So you almost have to live outside yourself, it would seem. Yeah, you definitely do. And it's funny when, you, when I get together with sort of former friends that, that worked in Moscow, we sort of talk about that because it's sort of, it never can leave your mind. So even if you're out and with friends or if you're single and you're dating or you've been drinking too much, you always have to keep that in the back of your head. Like, what are you saying? What are people hearing? It's just a constant thing there. You know, if you're with somebody or you're in their bathroom or sleeping with someone, whatever it is, you're being monitored and you have to think about what that means or not mean. And in one hand, you can't be overly conspiratorial. You can't be overly paranoid about things. You have to have the great majority of your life open to be inspected and then carefully think about that one small 1% that you're hiding from the adversary. You know, based on both your experience and your knowledge of, you know, the Soviet system up to 89 or 91, I guess. And then that sort of weird interregnum of Putin and, you know, everybody who can steal something is stealing something. Now, Putin's been there 20 years. Like, this is no spring chicken as far as being a dictator is concerned. Is it more like the Soviet times or less? Or has it changed just in the last couple of months because, you know, they've basically both been severed from the outside world and have once again severed themselves from the outside world? It's very much like the Soviet times, at least in the game of intelligence and Putin's view of the West and how he wants to sort of challenge the West and keep them at bay. And so during the 1990s, when Soviet Union had fallen, and in many ways, Moscow and what became Russia was sort of like the Wild West. People were coming in there trying to make money. Things were opening up. A new President Yeltsin was trying to sort of open up the country. The one thing that didn't change, interestingly, that's when I was there in the 90s, is the KGB. Essentially, the security services maintained in place. And it's sort of the story of Vladimir Putin. So that what happened is when the Soviet Union fell, the people who knew where the money were were the KGB guys. They were running the overseas smuggling networks. They were running the overseas banking and money laundering networks. And they sort of managed the Central Committee of the Communist Party's money. And so when the rest of the country was starting to fall apart, the KGB guys essentially stayed together pretty well and continued to keep the West at bay, trying to monitor all kinds of, of Americans and others. They continue to see the West and the United States as sort of their enemy. And so by the time Vladimir Putin becomes back in power, it's sort of the KGB guys coming back and taking over the state. And so Putin, as a career KGB officer, brought all his KGB buddies back around him. And to this day, the people who are closest to him all came through the security services. They're all sort of these KGB guys. So the security services, the mentality they call the Czechist mentality. That was the original Bolshevik spy service, the Cheka. Security officers in Russia are called Czechists. That mentality still maintains today. And so they use the security services domestically to spread disinformation and make sure there's no political opposition and jail and repress anybody who might be a threat to them domestically. And then they use it overseas, as we've seen in the United States in 2016 and other times. They use disinformation and subversion 
They've assassinated their enemies around Europe and other places, and they try to use you know, this cyber attacks and sabotage and all these things we've seen. So in many ways, the fact that the security services are the front and foremost of the foreign policy and the domestic policy of today's Russia, in many ways, it's like the Soviet Union and in some ways worse. I was going to ask you that because just in my reading, it seemed like that even the KGB and the Soviets were never as brazen with the assassinating people. Maybe they were, but we didn't know it. But being out in front as much, maybe it's also because the rest of the world was more open, so you'd hear more about it. But I mean, when you have a father and daughter get poisoned in the UK, and it's front page news, right? Or uh, Litvinenko, who you know drank the polonium tea, or these guys who fall off of their balconies. Like These are pretty overt acts of state-sponsored murder. Is it worse now? Because you have a, a true KGB guy. I mean, it's not Andropov, but there's one guy and there's no rules. It's not like there's a party central committee anymore, right? It's just him. That's right. It's one guy and it's rules. And it's based on sort of corruption. It's based on, it's almost like a czarist system where the czar is in charge. And then the coterie around him are allowed to keep their riches as long as they do his bidding. And in, in the czarist days, those were the boyars. And so when the czar wanted to go to war, he would go and get people and money from the boyars, that sort of that class that he sort of allowed to stay rich to support him. And so it's like the Soviet Union, but it doesn't have that animating ideology of communism. It's essentially a corrupt system that only supports the leader. But yeah, during the Soviet Union, they did assassinate and murder their enemies. They called it liquidating enemies of the people. And, you know, there's a really interesting one now that they're going into Ukraine. And you may see it referenced by the Russians or when Putin talks, he talks about when they went into Ukraine, they were going in to kill off the Banderites. And what's interesting about that, there was a guy called Stepan Bandera, who was a Ukrainian nationalist. So when the Soviet existed, you know, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And he, in World War II, fought against the Soviets and at some point actually worked with the Nazis and the Germans to fight the Soviets because he wanted Ukraine to secede from the Soviet Union. And he lived in the late 1940s and early 50s in Munich and was trying to pull together Ukrainian nationalists. And at that time, the KGB sent an officer out to assassinate him and in his stairwell in his place in Munich, they used a poison gun created by the KGB to spray something in his face. And people thought he had a heart attack until several years later that the assassin actually defected to the West and explained how he had been sent out to kill Bandera. And so Russians still try to talk about the fact that Ukrainian nationalists are Nazis because Stepan Bandera worked with the Germans because he was trying to pull them out of the Soviet Union. So it's funny how these things come around. And so, no, they continued through much of the Cold War to murder their enemies. There's actually a really good book by a Harvard professor called Serhi Plochi called The Man with the Poison Gun that talks about that whole process and, and them trying to kill Stepan Bandera. And if you took it and you changed it to Sergei Skripal in Salisbury, England, or one of the others that the Russians have sent out recently to assassinate people, it's almost exactly the same, the same tradecraft, the same way of stalking people and casing the place and setting up, you know, murders and things. It's quite good. So you talked about the, you know, with the czar, there was the boyars. In the Soviet Union, it was the Central Committee. With Putin, he's got his security service old friends, cronies, but he's also got the oligarchs out there. And so much of what's going on now is cutting off oligarchs' access to Western Europe, their boats, their cash. I guess there was an expectation that these guys, you know, the summer months are coming on, they want to be on their boats with the girlfriends and all the other stuff. So is there any real expectation that these guys who have been made wealthy by Putin 
would actually say, you know what, we want to keep our privilege, we want to keep our cash, we want to keep our boats, and you caused us a lot of time and trouble, and maybe it's time for you to go. <laughs> that group of oligarchs are not really a threat. They're almost the second tier of supporters around him. And frankly, Putin has had a number of years where we've threatened that we're going to sanction. Every time he's done something, he's gone into Ukraine, he's gone into Georgia, he's gone into Moldova. We talk about, we're going to be serious this time, we're going to sanction people, we're going to go after the dirty money. And we never do. So he's had plenty of time to sort of cauterize himself. And he's got a smaller group of sort of supporters that are also rich, that their money depends on their closeness to the Kremlin. But there are many of these ex-security service guys that are around him. And that's his really closest people, and they influence them. And it's, and it's a small group. You're talking a handful, five or six people. That second layer of rich oligarchs, they were quite powerful in the 90s. They were allowed to keep their money by Putin as long as they never got involved in politics and they sort of stayed away. And when he came calling and said, I need your money, I need you to hide my money, or I need your money to influence the U.S. elections, they have to then do that. And he allows them to stay rich, allows them to stay out of jail. But that group that is sunning themselves in Saint-Tropez and going to London, no, they don't have the kind of influence that I think can threaten Putin. So you talk about the inner circle, for lack of a better way to put it. Before I talk about them, I want to talk about the imagery of Putin, which is last couple of days he's reappeared. But at the beginning of all this, the Russians and the Soviets have always done grandeur. Everything's always <laughs> these gigantic gaudiness or whatever. But there are these gigantic rooms where he's in one end behind a desk and it's like 60 or 70 feet. And then there's a group of people or it's that ridiculously long table with two guys down at the end of it. Yesterday, it's him behind a lectern with no one else around except for the gigantic booster section of what I assume is either a Soyuz rocket or an ICBM or maybe they're the same thing. But the difference is like the separation. I mean, he didn't do that by accident. Is it because he's afraid of these people? I mean, the only people we've seen him next to, John, are literally flight attendants from an airline that's, I guess, not flying. That's a really good question, and I don't have a good answer for you. It surprises me that he allows those kind of pictures to come out. And so there's a variety of things that this could be. You know, you're a dictator for 20 years. You always have to be watching your back, right? You're worried about other people having power. You worry about who's sort of trying to usurp you. Everyone's an enemy. You know, you don't want to end up like Gaddafi did in a gutter. Which apparently Putin is obsessed with, right? In particular, Gaddafi. Yeah, and I can understand that. If you're a dictator and there's no peaceful means of changing power, there's no way for anyone to impact the system other than to kill you, you always have to be trying to control your money, be in charge. And so he has to worry about a variety of things. What could it be? It could be he worries about a threat from them, bombing or something else, and he needs to be away from it. It could be something we don't know with his health. He's worried about COVID. There was some reporting recently, which I have no idea whether it's true or not, that people who've tracked him and pictures around him, he seems to have a cancer doctor who is with him at all times. And so he may be obsessed with his health. And to him, the state is him, right? So protecting him is about protecting Russia. I don't know what it is, but it seems odd to me that they would put those things out publicly to allow people to wonder if there's something wrong with them. Right. So back to the inner circle then. You've taken the oligarchs that we think of and sort of said, okay, they're doing their thing. They're going to be fine, but they're not going to take him out. Now you've got the real insiders, most of whom I assume are current, former security service guys. We've seen a couple of these guys under house arrest. One guy got sent to Lefertovo prison, which has a very bad reputation for very bad things happening in it. Probably only second to probably the Lubyanka, I'd guess. So what's going on in these guys' minds? Because there's loyalty, but to your point, 
under a dictator, the loyalty is always predicated on proximity to power, wealth, whatever it is. It's not like, oh, I, I love Vladimir Putin so much. He's my best friend. So what's going on with those guys, do you think, in your crystal ball? Well, in one thing, they have worked together for years and years. So there is something to the friendship. He does allow them to be filthy rich. And so while these oligarchs that we talk about that go in the West, these guys that are around him closer, what he's done is to protect against sanctions. He's sort of put them in charge of the domestic market. you know. And so even if you, we sanction the heck out of Russia, they still need to grow vegetables and stuff. So there's someone in charge of sort of domestic agriculture who then can still steal and make crazy money and those type of things. But these people are also, they've grown up with him and they're complicit in all of these things. They're complicit in putting people in jail and keeping the media at bay and changing the, the whole system and stealing from the people. And so all of them are sort of along with him. If you worry about some sort of uprising from the people, they're not just going to kill Vladimir Putin and think that these other guys are okay. So they're a cabal that is stuck to Vladimir Putin. So the people around him, yeah, they would be the greatest threat. They're the ones that really understand what makes him tick, what matters to him, what he does day to day. But he's also over time, you know, again, he's had plenty of time to think about this kind of thing. He's created a national guard, a new security service whose job is like a supercharged secret service, whose job is to essentially watch all of the other security services and protect him and the Kremlin, which is quite a large and powerful group itself. And so he keeps all these different groups, you know, he sometimes promotes one so they're up and then he knocks them back down so another one can come up. So it's this constant game of trying to keep everybody sort of weak and guessing. So let me ask you this as we're watching Ukraine. We were on the phone with a friend of ours before the invasion, and that person has extensive experience in that part of the world, as you do, and said, the Ukrainians are tougher than anybody thinks they are. The Russians are going to get stalled and it's going to be awful. They're going to kill everybody. And this was probably two weeks before the invasion. So are you surprised, one, by the brutality you've seen? And two, as we think about, you know, they are different countries, but, you know, there's cousins and uncles and grandfathers and everything on each side, that the Russian people, admittedly under the boot heel of Putin, are seemingly okay with this. Maybe they're not, and they can't do anything about it. But let me ask you the brutality question first. I mean, does that surprise you? Oh, no. The brutality question doesn't surprise me at all. Vladimir Putin, this has always been a problem with us in the West, is we tend to treat him like he's a regular foreign leader and he thinks like us and he cares about his image and he cares about human rights and, the, and he can be shamed into doing things. He doesn't care about his people. You know, if he needs to throw his people under the bus, he'll throw his people under the bus. If he needs to have Lots of Russians die to get what he wants. He'll have lots of Russians die. And there's plenty of experience, even from him. You know, his first thing that when he took over the prime ministership and then the presidency in 99 was to reinvade Chechnya. And essentially, they had gone to war with Chechnya in 1994, and it didn't go well. And it was pretty ugly for the Russians, sort of like the Ukraine invasion. They went in thinking it would be easy. It wasn't. It was bloody. And they had to sort of do a, a ceasefire that held for a number of years. Right. And the Chechen's not known as people that roll over either. No, no, that's very true. And so in 1999, when he came back in, he created a predicate, sort of like what we thought he was trying to do here in Ukraine, and then just went in and carpet bombed, destroyed artillery, just women, children, dogs, cats, cows, like rolled over Chechnya in a way that Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, looked like Stalingrad in World War II. There was almost nothing left, no people there. And over a number of years, just essentially killed his way into now Chechnya, the leadership in Chechnya is this sort of nut jobs that are completely subservient to the Kremlin. 
So the, the brutality thing, there's a long, long history of this in both Russian and Soviet things. I mean, the Russians going into Germany, I mean, there's talk about, you know, two million rapes and just destroying the people and looting. And even after the end of the Cold War, they just essentially tore out everything from the countries they're in and made their way back. So it's a brutality thing is just sort of part and parcel of the system. Why do you think that American leaders and the American foreign policy establishment, and I'll even ask about the American intelligence services, so quickly forgot who and what they were dealing with when it came to Russia? There's been this long thing since the end of the Soviet Union. There's sort of this hope that Russia is a European country that'll just come around. We have this tradition sort of in, in the United States that we have the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean sort of protecting us, and we hope that other people think like we do and that if there's a problem with a foreign country, it must be our fault, our communication. We just need to appeal to them better. And so there's been this long thing with Russia that every time they've sort of misbehaved or done something, we sort of say, okay, well, let's just, you know, give them their due. You know, it's been hard. The Soviet Union fell. Let's not push back too hard. And plus, the United States has a million irons in the fires. It's dealing with terrorism and China and, and Iran and all these other type of things. And so part of the problem that got us here is a series of presidents, not just recent presidents, but, you know, from Bush and Obama, Trump, and even up to Biden, there's this assumption that if we just try to work with Putin, we can come around. And I think now it's clear that he's never going to change. He hates the United States. He hates the West. He sees it as this sort of messianic view to destroy the West and to protect this greater Russia. Which is sort of a paranoia they've had for hundreds of years, right? And some of the paranoia is sensible in the sense that they have been, you know, invaded the Mongols and the Nazis and others have come in and burned and killed Russians to a level that, you know, we in the West can't even imagine. Actually, President Biden said in his State of the Union address, he made a, a statement, which is a true statement. It said, we've learned a lesson that when dictators do not pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. But that's sort of what got us into this. Yeah, but John, there's 900 books about 1933, right? <laughs> I mean, 1934, Munich, Czechoslovakia, like all of it. Like, this is not new news. No, I know. And we've wanted to reset or Bush looked into his soul or it's been this constant effort to try to deal with them. So that's why the Ukrainians essentially, why we were a little bit surprised and why the Ukrainians are fighting for, you know, their lives is because they do understand the Russians. They've lived next door to them. They've been under Russian oppression for years. They've been at war with them since 2014. Ukrainians have been dying since 2014. The Russians have been doing everything that we've seen times 10. They've been doing cyber attacks. They've been doing subversion. They've been trying to overthrow the country. They've been killing people and assassinating people and all these other kinds of things in Ukraine for a long time. So that when this happened, the Ukrainians are not fooled. They understand that Vladimir Putin wants to snuff out their nationhood. He wants them not to exist as a people. And so they are fighting for their lives. They're fighting to keep a nation alive for not just now and this year, but for the future. And so the Ukrainians understand the Russians. They've been dealing with them. And they're almost better at pushing back against a lot of this stuff because they're not surprised when they see it coming like we often have been. Well, and I think also just about the broader West, too. I was just reading something about Germany, that Germany has had this longstanding sort of, if we become good trade partners with Russia, they'll behave better. Maybe we're guilty of the same thing with China. But, John, the Germans went to such an extent that like they were so going to be reliant on this cheap energy from Russia that they shut down all their nuclear plants. Far be it for me to be either an energy expert or a geopolitics expert, but putting all your eggs in the basket you know, that's being held by Vladimir Putin doesn't seem to be a very wise choice. <laughs> no, it's not a wise choice. And they've been warned about it. 
But the coming together of Europe, the sort of creating of this open market, the creating sort of a free trade in Europe over the last 30 years, it's been a miracle. It's been fantastic. We've created sort of this peaceful zone of countries working together that they've often forgot that not everyone works that way. They've created these sort of rules and rules-based system, and they've forgotten essentially that freedom isn't free. It doesn't just automatically happen. Countries, just because they're trading with you or because it doesn't seem to make sense to you, doesn't mean that someone else isn't going to try to take away what you have or they're going to invade people. So I, I think the invasion surprised a lot of Europeans who sort of thought that you know the world had changed and were sort of past these things. And Vladimir Putin reminded them that no, you know, power rules. And if I have more power than you, I will take advantage of that. So let me ask you this. The European Union and NATO are probably, I guess, theoretically as united as they've been since the alliance was formed. What role do you see that President Biden has played in that? It's a long question because Biden's been around for a long time. And so I think the administration did make a few you know, really crucial mistakes when they came into power. One of them is they said, we're going to focus on Asia and China, and we want a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Now, that sounds nice as a goal, but it presupposes that Russia wanted a stable and predictable relationship. Russia has been at war with us for 10 years. They've been trying to undercut us everywhere in the world. Anything that hurts the United States helps them. They've been involved in sort of political warfare, information warfare. They've been trying to mess with our elections. They've been trying to use disinformation. They've been, you know, sort of doing anything they could to sort of separate us from Europe and all these other kind of things. So, you know, wanting a stable and predictable relationship is something Putin was never going to allow. And so basing your assumptions of policy on that was sort of silly. And then, of course, you know, I mentioned that we didn't deal with him effectively. We didn't push back. We didn't show sort of the spine and toughness over a number of years. That was made worse by a couple things. It was made worse by Vladimir Putin looking at our domestic politics and seeing that, you know, we're so inwardly focused and we hate each other so much so that January 6th happened. And then separately, getting out of Afghanistan, it was a complete and utter mess. It showed weakness. We lost a war to the Taliban, of all people. It almost showed that we did not want to play our role on the global stage. And I think Vladimir Putin put all these things together. You know, obviously, he wanted a vassal state or a state belonging to Russia, a greater Russia on his border. And he said, the West is weak. They have never pushed back effectively. Every time I've done something, I've gone into Crimea, I've gone into Ukraine before, I've gone to Georgia, they never actually push back. The Americans are pulling out of the Middle East. They, you know, they've had 20 years of war. Americans are not interested in war. They're actually interested in fighting each other. The French and Germans, they're dependent upon me. They're not trying to defend themselves either. Now is the time for me to get these things that I want. And so in some way, you can understand how he put together a case thinking that this was a sensible time and a sensible thing to do, even though it turned out, of course, not to be. The Russians, they went in thinking this was going to be a three-day thing, not coordinated. Even a very amateur armchair historian like me watched this and said, wow, you know, I've got my BH little heart on strategy book up here in my office somewhere. And, you know, when people are fighting for their homeland and they believe it's do or die, you know, they're worth five or six X, you know, one invader, especially when the invader's an 18-year-old drunk conscript. <laughs> now it's still a war. But like, where does it go from here? Because to your point about Stalingrad, like the Ukrainians, they got bunkers for days now, right? They got snipers nests for days now. They got guys with can hide with javelins. I mean, even if the Russians were to quote unquote take over, it doesn't appear that this is going to be an easy time for Russia. And I don't know how much they have left in them considering that if you assume that the best of their combat power has already been exhausted, that, you know, they're bringing in Syrians, they're bringing in the Chechens. I mean, it's terrible for the Ukrainians, but the momentum seems to be lost. 
This is the weakness of a dictatorship, a dictator that's been in power for 20 years and has very strong opinions on things. You know, he thinks he knows better than people. Everyone who's been around him understands how to deal with him if they want to stay alive or they want to stay rich. They want to say the things that they know he wants to hear, while at the same time stealing from the state coffers all the way. You know, I've talked about modernizing and reforming their military, but you know, you can be bet that all of the contracts for the last 20 years, people had to steal all the way up and down the, the contract to make their money. And so there's all kinds of problems that going to that. But the one thing that Vladimir Putin has done here is he's guaranteed Ukrainian nationhood for the future. Ukrainian schools will be teaching about this, about how they resisted coming under the Russian yoke again. There will be heroes in their books about people who fought off the Russian of old ladies that blew up tanks and these type of things. And so the happy assumption that they would go in and they could just kill Zelensky and put in a puppet government or that the Ukrainians would go running or the Russian speakers in Ukraine would welcome Russians with open arms were these happy assumptions that maybe Vladimir Putin has been talking about to his people for so long that it was against their interest to tell him that that wasn't true and it wasn't going to work. And so now, again, in, in Russian traditions, and there's lots of history of this, the Finnish war and in Chechnya and others we talked about, you know, the strong man cannot allow himself to appear to be weak. He's got to find someone else to blame and he's got to double down on brutality to show that, you know, he doesn't give up and he can call something a win. So I think it's clear to us that there's a lot more Ukrainians that are going to die, but Ukrainian nationhood, the one thing that he was trying to snuff out is probably stronger than it's ever been and will continue for years to come. And sort of the pulling together of Europe, again, which is something he didn't want, and US and Europe he didn't want, are now stronger than they've been in a long time. Well, and we should just remind everybody listening that Ukraine is a nation of 40 million people. It is not, you know, a small former Soviet republic. It's the size of Texas with the population of California with a vibrant economy and a vibrant culture. You know, I think I saw one of those things, John, that one of the Russian soldiers was calling home to his mom or whatever got picked up by the Ukrainians and said, it's so nice here. <laughs> you know, the grass is nice. The streets are wide. The buildings are beautiful. It sort of sounded like Soviets when they got to Germany in 1945. They're like, why did they want anything to do with us? <laughs> right? like the, you know, some of these kids grew up, you know, probably still living in, you know, on dirt roads. Oh, I'm sure there's conscripts from out in the central part of Russia or ethnic minorities. It's far from European civilization as you can even possibly imagine. And you can imagine these people being pulled off in their villages and thrown into Ukraine and told to, to kill these people because they're Nazis. They get there and they have no idea what's happening or what they're in for. Well, let me uh, bring it home here as we wrap up. One is I'll ask you a question that everyone has a suspicion of, but probably nobody has an answer of. Trump and Putin. Do you believe that Putin has something on the guy? Wow, that's a bigger question. I've written things on it. The problem is if you say something that you think is true, there's going to be people jumping on all that kind of stuff. I see, you know, I'm oversimplifying here. We can talk about this a whole other time if you'd like. I see them very similar in the sense that they're both gangsters. They're both have a mentality of organized criminal bosses in a sense. And they both have been involved in unseemly and criminal and unethical behavior, so much so that they don't even know what people have on them. And so there's almost this sort of honor among thieves is he doesn't want to upset Putin because he knows Putin must have something on him because he's done so many, you know, traveled there. He's been laundering money. He's got all sorts of things going on. They also have that sort of tough guy mentality that they have to always double down on, on sort of being awful. And so does Putin have something on Trump? I think Trump thinks Putin has something on him, and that's enough. 
Putin does collect on any Westerners, Americans that go to their country. If anyone goes there and gets involved in illegal activity or finding a way to steal money or money laundering or involved in, you know, sexual activity or whatever, the Russians are going to keep that. They're going to maintain that and they're going to look for an opportunity to use it. It doesn't have to be used in a blatant and direct way, but, you know, knowing that people might have something on you makes you change the way you operate in the world. And so at this point, it almost doesn't matter if Putin has like some sex tape on Trump. It's way beyond that. The way that they've sort of conspired together to sort of undermine each other's countries and their own countries, it's worse than that. Whether Putin has something on Trump, Trump's worse than that. So let me ask you this. As we look ahead a couple of years, Russian state media has been extolling the virtues of the Tucker Carlson's of the world, talking about how you know we want Trump, our president, back in two years. There was a story in the Daily Beast I think yesterday that said that Putin is so enraged by all this that, you know, he's going to do everything he can to mess with our elections in 23, 24 ahead of that. What does that look like, do you think? Is it more just misinformation, disinformation? Is it more active measures? Is it activating assets they have here in the country because now it might be more difficult to do it from St. Petersburg? What does it look like? in a post-Ukraine world for a guy like Putin to try and mess with our elections? What we see now is almost no matter what happens, Putin can't win in the sense that he expected to win. Ukraine wins in the sense that they are going to maintain their nationhood. But there is still one key way that they can lose, that Putin can really win this, despite all of his foibles, everything that's gone bad. And that's if Donald Trump wins the election again. So if Donald Trump wins the election again, Putin truly does win. Ukraine truly does lose. We do pull out of NATO. Our relationship with Europe suffers. Our relationship with the allies suffer. And so it is in Vladimir Putin's strong interest to have Donald Trump or Donald Trump-like people be elected in the United States. So I do believe that he's going to find ways and try to involve himself to the extent he can by using dirty money, using these active measures and these covert means and disinformation and things that we've seen in the past. The one advantage he has is we saw in 2016, as we looked at that and learned about how the Russians done it in the past, we saw how they would create these fake stories and try to push them into our media food chain and get us to believe them. The one advantage he has now is he doesn't need to do that. What All he has to do is see Americans that are already doing it and amplify and exploit those kind of things. So you can go on our social media and you can see idiots doing stuff that's just damaging to the national fabric. And you can, if you have the means, amplify and push and do that. So essentially, he doesn't have to invent a fake story to push out there. He just takes American fake stories that already exist and supercharges them to a point where essentially we start attacking ourselves. So he's going to use all the means that he has. Does that mean it's enough to swing elections and all that kind of stuff? I don't know, but it still is hurtful and making things worse than they already are for us. Do you think that the Republican Party, if it's not Trump, although I think he will run again, or the base of the Republican Party is sympathetic to Russia and Vladimir Putin and that sort of white nationalist authoritarianism. Well, yes, I do. I'm hurt by that. I spent my you know, career inside a national security organization, institution that was completely nonpartisan. None of us who worked together on the streets in Afghanistan or in Moscow or any of the kind of places ever knew what the party politics were of the people we work for. We were working on behalf of the United States, behalf of the United States national security. And so to come out and see that our leadership oftentimes is doing things that are undercutting 
our national security around the world. You know, Putin hates the United States. He wants to destroy the United States. He wants chaos in the United States. Even, you know, the whole his whole thing with Trump, he doesn't care about President Trump. He supports Trump because Trump is the chaos candidate. Trump hurts the United States. Therefore, Vladimir Putin will support him because he hurts the United States. It's not that he loves Donald Trump and thinks he's a great friend or anything like that. He doesn't care about those kind of things. So, yes, I really, really worry about the Republican Party. You know, governing is about compromise. And if both parties are so far to the end that they never talk to each other, never compromise, there is no governing. And as time goes on, there's no governing. People are frustrated because government can't do things for them. They get more and more radical. And so the fact that the Republican Party has gone so far off the rails and stopped being a governing party and is only a party about trying to get on TV and say the crazier and crazier things, it's really troubling. And I truly hope either the Republican Party, the sort of few sensible people that are left in it can come around and, and sort of win out and change it, or the thing destroys itself. You know, I consider myself a centrist and probably more to the right on national security things and a little bit more to the left on some other things. But it hurts me as an American to see that kind of behavior by some of these folks on the right. In your experience as an intelligence officer, for the folks listening out there as we wrap up here, what are the things that they should look out for in a misinformation, disinformation space? Because this is the one thing I, I thought about Trump was, and admittedly it was a speech at CPAC, so take it for that, but so many of the things he said sound crazy to somebody like me whose stock and trade is making sure that Donald Trump never graces the Oval Office again or demeans the Oval Office again. But there's stuff in there that's just believable enough. And it's even really not about getting anybody to come to his side, but to scare the hell out of Americans about the Democrats. If you had a couple of things for folks to look out for, what might those be? I think you hit on the key problem here is if Americans believe that the other political party are the true enemies, then they can justify trying to destroy their enemy by doing things that are just beyond the bounds. Rather than thinking of Russia as the enemy or China as the enemy or terrorists as the enemy or Iran as the enemy, you think of Democrats as the enemy, we're in a really bad place. And so the fact that the Republicans are having to use fear to try to animate their sort of base and get more people out, they've taken what the Russians sort of understood instinctually. And then groups like Cambridge Analytica and these others did is they know that if they can, on the far right, if they can stir up nut jobs they have never voted to actually come out and vote. And on the left, they can suppress voters and they can suppress blacks and others to say that all parties are bad. There's no way to change anything. Even that little bit on new voters on the right and suppressing on the left creates a, a system that allows a non-majority party that's more unified to sort of win an election. We somehow have to tone down. Everything is not about politics. Our day-to-day -day lives, everything we do is not about political games. But it's almost become a blood sport that everybody's involved in. And I don't know, it's not healthy. It's certainly not. And, you know, we talk to a lot of folks, John, all the time who say, I just want the noise to stop. I want everybody to get along. I want people to compromise. I don't like the extremes on every side. And I want it now. And what I say, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, John, is we're in a turbulent period. And what you're asking for doesn't happen until, from my perspective, the pro-democracy side wins, the anti-democracy side loses, and there's some reordering into a new, whatever the new normal is. But hoping that you can be in a tornado and say, I'd really like things to be normal now. <laughs> it's a nice thing to think about, but it seems probably unrealistic. Well, it's always been the weakness of Democrats is they just assume that they can sort of reason their way out of it. It's going to take some tough action and some tough 
choices to sort of move us beyond this. It's like the Ukraine-Russia thing. Essentially, we're at a turning point in history here. If Vladimir Putin is allowed to sort of be seen to win this, or Ukraine is seen to sort of give up here, it changes sort of politics, international politics, and sort of the way that the rules-based order that's been around since World War II, it changes that. It empowers China to think about, you know, tying themselves to Russia and, and creating sort of an anti-Western, anti-U.S. sort of thing. Ukraine needs to be seen to, to win this. Putin needs to be seen to lose this so that the West can get on with things and democracy can succeed. Domestically, the sensible people have to come together. The large, massive center has to win, not just hope for the best. Well, I appreciate it, John. I appreciate all you have done in service to our country and what you continue to do with your commentary and writing. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media? So I'm on Twitter at John underscore Cipher, S-I-P-H-E-R. And I occasionally just write for a variety of publications. But I spend most of my days working. I have a production company trying to make espionage shows and movies. And so that's what I spend most of my time doing these days. Are there any of those that you can share with us? Any that you've worked on you can share with us? Well, the one thing I've learned since getting into this with some former colleagues is... Hollywood's also a strange business and it takes forever. And so we have a lot of projects, some of them, you know, signed with Netflix and Apple and things that are sort of moving. But by the time something gets to the process where it shows up on the screen, that's still a ways down the road. I look forward to seeing something that y'all are involved in. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. John Cipher, I want to thank you for joining me and everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.